Um, I had a couple of questions from some people about the Latin, and I haven't spent a lot of time on the Latin Bible, and that's probably a mistake I made early on. Um, And since there was some interest and some questions, I wanted to just take one step back of why we have this variation. We do want to close those doors, I think, at this point there, Mr. Brummett. And so um, we're going to look at two families, and I talked about the two families of texts that were talking about the Textus Receptus, and we think of it as Greek, but really what we have uh, more is the Latin. And um, we talk about this as a Greek text, and that is true, um, but there's also the original Vulgate, and this is, gets real confusing, okay? So when we talk about the Vulgate, that is the common language, which was Latin at the time in the Roman Empire, um, and by the way, it's not the Greek Vulgate. There's the Greek and the Vulgate. Um, it was in Latin, and it was the vulgar text. That is, that's what the commoners spoke in Rome. And so, um, technically, this is a Latin Vulgate. It predates Constantine. We can take that all the way down to at least 150 um, A.D. So we can take that back pretty far. Uh, Constantine is into the 300s. We're going to talk about that when we get to these and um, look at that family. And so the Texas Receptus that the King James and New King James translators used were derived from this family tree, if you will. So we have a tree, a family root of texts that we're going to build off of uh, that, yes, we have been able to trace it back um, pretty reasonably to about 150 A.D., um, and again, this was a common one. We had it both in Greek and in Latin available to us. And there, the Texas Receptus really gives us, what, about a 95%? Um, we have a 95% similarity between all of them. And so very minimal differences Um, and a lot of it is very small, uh, very small scribal issues and not really large portions missing. Some of it is um, uh, what we've talked about before uh, with just copy errors and things like that. But we have 95%. That's 19 out of 20 places. um, 19 twentieths of it is going to be... um, the same, not only with these, but with a lot of other texts, not only with them within themselves, but in that whole family that we're going to, I'm going to draw out a little family tree for you so you can start to see all the ones that were derived out of these. The other group of texts is called um, the Latin Vulgate, and that was done by Jerome. And so we had take this one back to 150 AD um, for the old, the old Vulgate. Um, but uh, he comes along, Jerome comes along, and uh, we have two things happen before Jerome does the Vulgate. I have these kind of reversed. I, I did them from one to the other. Um, we knew that we had Jerome's Vulgate. We've had this available to us. We have several copies of it, many copies of it. Um, and so we have that, and we've been familiar with it. That's not something that's brand new to us at all. Um, and so we... Uh, recognize it, and I'm trying to get a date here. Let me get the date. 382. So this was 382, he did the Latin Vulgate. 
and uh, Jerome was somewhat commissioned. Now, years and years later, hundreds of years later, um, in the 1800s, I want to say, early 1800s, um, no, wait, that's Sionicus. Um, Vaticanus was found a little earlier than that, I want to say 1500s. We found in Rome, at the Vatican, a copy of the Latin Bible. And they called it Vaticanus. Um, and it was determined that it was written, let's see if I can get the date from that one. Um, it was written at 325 to 350. There was a, which is an important period of time right there. Um, there's, there's something really important historically that happens there. And so when they dated it to that, everyone got real excited. Oh, we have a Latin translation of our Bible um, that's back in this period of time. And then sometime later, um, again, 1844, in the, <laughs> the uh, monastery, I don't know if it's a monastery, um, the ecclesiastical building that's there at, at Sinai, um, which isn't really Sinai, but they built a place because Constantine's witch told him that that's where it was. Um, so they built this place and they found another copy in Latin and in, at Sinai. So it became Sinaiticus. Sinaiticus was found at Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula, not the, what the actual Sinai was, but where Constantine established that. And so they again dated this at 340. And lots of excitement was generated by the discovery of these two. And what we then, when they did some comparisons to the Latin Vulgate that we had from Jerome, we find out that they are almost all identical. In fact, so closer than anything. And we've begun to now, a lot of modern scholars are starting to question, are they really three different texts? And so these were counted as different ones. This was down in the Sinai Peninsula. This is at Rome. And Jerome's we have had available uh, many copies. Well, not many, but several copies available to us. And so we had all this. Now, what happened in this period of time? In this period, something very important happened in Rome. What was it? You guys know? I already referenced it a little bit. The council, and I see it called by who? Constantine, the emperor, who converts to Christianity on the battlefield um, when he sees a, something in heavens, and it says under this sign, conquer. Um, I, he interprets it as a cross or as some Christian symbol. Um, converts to Christianity because he's sure he can conquer all of his enemies that way. That's right in line with all of Scripture, I'm sure. Uh, that you can just bring up many verses to correlate with that. Um, but uh, he converts. And so he has all these Christian factions, and he says, I want one Christianity. We should have complete uniformity. And he calls them all in to hammer this out. What do we all believe? And in the midst of this, he also commissions one Bible. He was the King James of the 300s. He commissions one Bible, 
and the guy that he commissions to make 50 copies. I thought I'd gone through some of this, but maybe I went too fast or someone missed it. He was commissioned, and that was Eusebius. Was commissioned to make 50 copies, and they were going to be the regulation Latin Bible for the Roman Empire, which in Constantine's mind meant all of Christianity. And so we're pretty sure that these are simply one of those 50 copies. And because of that, and so we think we have two of the 50 found. Very exciting. Um, What was interesting is that when we compared it to Jerome's claim to a Latin Vulgate, it was pretty much identical. What Jerome really did when he, he really didn't retranslate the Bible, we're starting to think all he did was he had access to one of these copies from the previous generation and tweaked it a little bit. He just updated some of the Latin terms uh, very slightly, and so these are pretty much all the same. Now, why is this uh, a different family from this group over here of this older Vulgate and the Greek of the Texas Receptus? Uh, Essentially because of the theological things going on under Constantine. And here's what was happening. Um, There was a guy named Arius, and he was uh, a heretic. Um, He denied uh, a very important truth, and, um, and he was exiled. But then Constantine converted to Arianism, brought Arius back, and during this time period, including Eusebius, who all joined, whatever Constantine was, Eusebius was, um, promoted Arian doctrine. And so we have a period of time with Arianism um, that uh, they didn't attack the humanity of Christ, they were attacking the deity of Christ. Arianism attacks that Christ was fully divine. And so out of these Latins, we find this influence of the Arians. And this is our concern with some of these, of the Latin. And again, we talked about the Masoretic text, about a thousand. We talked about the Alexandrian text of Greek. But there is also an issue with these two families of the Latin going back. And so we have lots of, when we hear textual critics talk about some manuscripts, these manuscripts, other manuscripts, this is what they're talking about, is we have these different family groups, and they're distinguishable. We can, these three are almost indistinguishable from each other. The likelihood is these two are written at the same time and are probably one of the 50 copies that Eusebius made for Constantine. Uh, but again, with the Arian influence. And just to give you an idea of what that looks like, what does he mean if they deny the deity of Christ, or they question or challenge the deity of Christ. Um, What does that look like in my Bible? Well, you can actually see it if you compare the King James or New King James to some of the modern translators that are built out of this family group along with the Alexandrian texts that we found. And so what do we have missing? Which probably, again, is one of these. Okay? Um, So what are they? Well, um, There's about 190 variations in the New Testament that are considered significant. 
a majority of, uh, or the largest number of them is the exclusion of one word over and over and over and over again. Guess what that, word's ex- that word is? Think of Arians. Denying the deity of Christ, that one word is the word Lord. It is excluded multiple, multiple times out of the title of Jesus Christ. He is not the Lord Jesus Christ, he is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. And the expression, the Lord Jesus Christ, is reduced. And so it happens time and time and time again. Um, And uh, (laughs) uh, this gentleman, I brought his book because he cataloged every single one of them. Um, He cataloged every passage, every verse. um, And so he's got 162 um, variations uh, from Matthew 125, and a word missing is pulled out. These are extractions to J- Revelation 21:24. So he's got from Matthew through Revelation. And if you read through this, what you'll find over and over again is sometimes the word God, um, it's the word Lord many times, and sometimes it's a whole verse here and there. And if you read your King James next to an NIV or next to a uh, uh, NASB or RSV, you will be able to see these line up. And uh, the, the exclusion of this. And this is one of the influences that we see where theology influences um, our handling of the scripture. They didn't want to acknowledge the deity of Christ. Constantine was Arian. Most of the, of the hierarchy, the bishops under Constantine's church were, had to be Arian, and so we have the influence there, and when they copy the scripture, by the way, you, also involved in these texts are some apocryphal statements brought in and introduced that aren't over here in this group. So it's not just that, there are some other aspects of these that give us some question marks over how did they get in there, um, but uh, this is one of the key issues that a lot of your King James-only people will just keep throwing at you, the Arian Bible. You have one of those Arian Bibles. They deny the Lord Jesus. And in fact, um, the, the greatest example that they use, of course, is in the book of Acts. So let's turn there real quick and let's look at that example because uh, there's a whole verse missing in Acts and it's with the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, and if you've had any exposure, you know that you probably have a very good idea what we're getting at, and that's in Acts chapter 8. In verse 37. And if you have a new King James, or a King James, new King James, you have a verse 37. If you have an NIV, you do not have a verse 37. It's gone altogether. If you have an NASB, if you have an RSV, if you have an ASV, you have all of those modern versions Um, You won't have this verse. It will be in a footnote, possibly. And in our Bibles, there is a number saying that this isn't in some manuscripts. Well, this is the manuscripts they're talking about. And here's what's missing. It says, verse 37, Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that is missing. It's completely gone in this set. And again, we see the Arian influence. Well, here's a declaration by someone uh, that this is God. I believe. What do you have to believe? You have to believe 
than the deity of Christ or you're not saved. If he's not God and man, his sacrifice, even though a sinless sacrifice, can't cover all men. And so this is just one example, and again, there are many, but this is one example of what we see lacking in these texts. And so they just drop this word a lot. If you go through the cataloging of this, you'll see Lord is missing, Lord is missing, Lord is missing. Um, well, if you're an Arian, you don't want that word in there. And there is another passage <clears throat> where Jesus receives worship. And that's pretty important, isn't it? Because that's a big example. When Jesus receives worship, we take um, some note of it. Um, and another individual is Schofield. And I don't know, probably most of you aren't that in tune with How many of you know who Schofield is? Schofield Reference Bible. Just a few of you. Okay, just three, two or three of you. Schofield was kind of the original study Bible. Um, and he put out a, the cross-referencing system that is in most center column Bibles now was really originated almost by Schofield. And he put in all of his notes, um, but the problem was that Schofield really introduced the idea of a study Bible that I'm going to help you understand this. And in the midst of this, he put in some notes. And one of those notes is that when um, it tells us that, uh, no, he is worshiping him not as God, um, because the word can be used two ways, but as a, it can be used either for the worship of a, a creature master or a creator master. And in parenthesis, Schofield puts under the reference creature as this usage. So in his notes, he's saying that they're worshiping Jesus not as creator, but as creature. And so again, we, this is the struggle coming out of this. Well, how do we address that? Now, by the way, the Schofield Bible was a King James Bible. It was his notes that were the issue. And so he, a lot of this was just really getting more popularized and coming forward during that time. And so when we look at uh, uh, some of these around 1901, um, another translation came out. And again, now we have all of this available to us. These were found in the eight, late 1800s was Sinaiticus, and so there was a resurgence of interest in this Latin family in conjunction with the Masoretic and then with the Egyptian texts. So we have all, the Alexandrian Egyptian texts, so we have all of this resurging interest in translation work, but they all want to go to this family and away from the Texas Receptus, and there brought a lot of doubt over here. Um, and that's what was at issue with the Latin. So the, I know I talked about the Greek quite a bit, about the two Greek families. Um, I wanted to, I didn't reference this very much apparently, and I wanted to make sure we clarified that. I do understand this is part of that family group as well, out of which most of our modern translations are derived. And this is all Latin, though, and not Greek. But we do have this resurgence, and this is really what brought about in the last 120 years or so this this interest in, in really getting new versions, but all of the versions that have been produced, other than the New King James, were built out of this family group. So let's look at this family group a little bit. I'm going to erase um, these because I think they're all about the same, so we'll just, um, uh, from, 
they're pretty much equal entities. And so we're going to uh, build these roots. So I'm just going to try to um, present this. Let's see, I got it marked in here. I don't remember all the names of all these texts, so I don't expect you to either. We just want to um, get it. So out of Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Jerome's Vulcate, we have a family, a, a group of texts. So these weren't isolated, but again, we did not have Sinaiticus, we did not have Vaticanus. All right, well, those were found in the 1800s. So that's why I don't really include them here. Um, they would have predated the Vulgate and probably been what the Vulgate was built out of, what Jerome used as the overwhelming fountain. I don't know that he tweaked it very much at all. But uh, here we go. And so we come up and we have the Alexandrian. is out of that same family group. Um, we then... Um, Let's see here. I'm not going to do every single one of these. Alexander was in 450. So we're starting to see a lot of times, some time span. But then we have a great big jump. And that big jump takes us all the way into the 1400s. And we have a proliferation of uh, some, I'm sorry, not the 1500s. Um, that's the, the Douay. Have you heard of that? A few of you heard of that? The Douay Bible? So that would have been the 1500s. So we're into the 1500s there. Um, I'm not sure exactly, 15, late 1500s, I think. And uh, from there, and, and again, these are all independent, but they're derived from this source. And so we're coming up, and, and each one of these is going to be an independent translation, but out of that same root. And uh, the one we want to really talk about is um, the Wordsworth in the 1870s. couple of guys um, take it upon themselves. They call a, a meeting. They want to, and uh, the first attempt has failed. Second attempt, uh, because nobody wanted to change the, the King James. The second attempt, um, these two fellows really took it over. And they were Arians. And they said, no, none of this Texas Receptus is worthwhile. And they, and they were committed completely. In fact, their notes say that the number one text they would derive off of and that they preferred over anything else was Vaticanus. Well, we know that Vaticanus was Arian. We know it. And so we, um, because we know the time frame, we know what it was commissioned for, we know the history. We, we have it all very well documented what the councils were about and what the Arianism that uh, was condemned and that whole history. And so what they did was they started putting together and they emphasized this and we find them um, producing these Bibles, Alfred, the Chichendorf, uh, but it's Westcott and Hort took off from Wordsworth and these two guys, Westcott and Hort, Again, building off of the work of, of that in, uh, what is that, 10 years later, 1881. And this is going to be the foundation in English for just about all of your other modern translations. They can say they go back to the original, but this is really becomes the foundation, kind of like the King James over here becomes the foundation in, in 1611, 
you have the King James Version um, becomes the foundation out of the Texas Receptus, uh, the Hallmark one. Um, well, this was the Westcott and Hort become kind of the Hallmark one for that whole family group. But their perspective was complete commitment to the Vaticanus. He was, they were so excited about its finding, uh, its discovery. They were convinced because it lined up with the Latin Vulgate of Jerome that it must be the, the Word of God and we're going to abandon the Texas Receptus even after all these hundreds of years and now we're going to have a superior Bible. And that's what that family group is out of. Now lest you think that the King James didn't have a heritage as well, I better put that up here too. I think he's got it in here. He's got to have that in here. There we go. Uh, the King James was not um, isolated either. It didn't just come out of the blue and drop down from heaven. So <laughs> it has a family line as well. And so that's not the problem. The family line, and I've really given you very few, but uh, we could trace these translations and there is a tracing here as well. And so let's look at it. If we start with the Texas Receptus, um, we've already used some of these terms. We have the Peshit, and I shared that with you, the Peshita. Um, you're, we're just going to work our way up this family out of the Texas Receptus. I'm just going to hit two or three highlights. Um, Luther's Bible comes out of that, and so you, you run into the period of the Reformation. So Luther's Bible is there. A lot of people don't know that he had one, but he did. Uh, very important to him. The, the Coverdale Bible is on this family. So these are all English. Well, that would be German. So we're getting into the English now. And then, of course, um, we have a couple. And, and there's two that we want to really talk about that uh, are going to be the foundation, really, for the King James. And that's the Bishop's Bible. And what was the name of the other one? Help me out. Let me look. Geneva. The Geneva Bible. Oh. And these become the root, really the, the strong, strong influence on the King James. And so, and again, there's a huge proliferation of Bibles right in here, the 1500s, 1600s, 1400s. Um, and that's really why King James called that council together was because there are so many different versions. He wanted one. He wanted to standardize. He really wanted to do for the English, for the British Empire, what Constantine wanted to do for the uh, Roman Empire. And so he wanted to bring all of these together and the translators um, were dependent upon one. They had a favorite. Surprise. They had a favorite source of English to derive from. There was, of course, the Tyndale Bible available. You have lots of Bibles available in this period of time. A huge number. But among their number, these were the preferred ones. And so we find that influence there. And, of course, what is King James? What's his, his theological backdrop? King of England. Was he before or after the Henrys? That's what we want to know, right? That was Henry, right? Was that before or after 
We should ask our British person here before. Okay, Henry has already broken from the Catholic Church, so now we have what church in England? The Anglican Church. And so we have that influence there as well. And so that's what's going, that's the milieu of what's going on in England during this time. Lots of proliferation by you still had Catholics gathering up Bibles and burning them publicly. Okay, the Geneva Bible, they were still being burned publicly. During Luther's time, his Bibles, if, he, if they could be found, they would be burned. The, the Catholics were very much against the proliferation of God's Word. It should only be in Latin. It should be the Vulgate. Um, and this Texas Receptus was around in a couple of things, but it, it, it just stayed alive. And again, I've really abbreviated the tree. Okay, the, the tree's got... What, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, sixteen version, sixteen translations, um, ranging from 1300 to 1604. So I've really abbreviated this, but you have Tyndale's, you've got the Great Bible, that was its title, the Great Bible. Um, all of those were available. And so he wanted it unified so we'd have one and again like I said the church resisted that for 50 years they wouldn't accept the King James it wasn't really until the 1700s before we really have the King James version became becoming standardized in many of your of your Protestant and Reformation churches as well as in your uh, Baptist churches and uh, Mennonite and that, that family group the radical family group and so those are your two Bible trees, and it's really rooted out of this foundation of what are you deriving it from. And, and again, we talked about the different mechanisms of translation, but I, I guess I didn't explain this part very well, because there's still a lot of question in people's minds about how that happened and how Latin was involved. Okay, now remember, today there are still conservative, ultra-conservative Catholic groups that want everything done only in Latin. Right? Who's the famous person that wants it all in Latin? Mel Gibson. He's a Latin-only Catholic. It should only, the Mass should only be done in Latin. And um, so he's a very strong advocate of that. He's, a, he's an ultra-conservative Catholic, um, that, that we should go back to the, the Mass being only said in Latin. And so that's um, the, the foundation of that is, goes back to this. Okay, any questions? Because I really want to press into what I want to do next, more this week, but I'm going to do it next week. Oh, no, next week's a business meeting, isn't it? Two weeks from tonight, we're going to try to finish up this study. Okay, two weeks from tonight. Okay, Yes? With one of these older ones, well, they wore out, and they weren't in our language. And the, the whole goal of the Reformation period with uh, really, I think Tyndale really kicked it off more than anybody else, um, was the people should have their Bible in their own language. They shouldn't have to learn a foreign language to know God's word. And so these were in Greek or in Latin, and for the masses, they didn't know Greek or Latin by this point. They knew French, they knew English, they knew German. They didn't know Greek or Latin. And the priests only did the services in Latin. 
whether you were Anglican or Catholic, didn't matter. It was all in Latin. And um, so the, can you imagine going to, ch- to a church service every week and they're speaking a different language? That I read God's word out of another language you've never learned. Can you imagine? And then you're up to the priest to tell you what that means. Well, you didn't even understand the words that are there, let alone now he can make it say whatever he wants. And that's how so many destructive doctrines got introduced into Christianity was because of the ignorance of the people not having access to the Bible to see for themselves. So that's why. And Tyndale really started that. And remember, these guys were hunted. They were hunted for doing this work. Their Bibles were burned whenever they could under the nose of a bishop. Um, they They were martyred. They were slaughtered for doing this. If you got caught with a press that was putting out Bibles, your press was destroyed, your family, your house was burned down, if you lived, okay, just to get people a Bible in their language. That's why there are so many, okay, and that's why we don't have huge numbers of these, and so if you can get a hold of a Tyndale Bible, wow, One of the, and you're going to get like half a page. They're that rare, okay, you're, you're going to, and it's a treasure, it's a complete treasure, so if you get a hold of some of these, of the originals. And remember, for the most part, the printing press was just starting. This was the hand typeset stuff. And uh, it wasn't mimeograph machines. It wasn't copiers. It wasn't computer. Um, A lot of these were still handwritten. Sit down and copy the Bible. How long does it take you to read the Bible, let alone copy it? Okay. And so these were hand-copied many times, some machine-copied, but again, not like what you think of as a machine-copy, not electric and involved, typesetting it, and they would do a page at a time. So some people in their churches would only have a page, and they would lose their freedom. Um, Sometimes they lost, they just cut off certain parts of their body as penalty for having a page of the Bible in your own language. Okay, does that answer that? Why there's so many? They had a real desire to do that. Yes? What is the... Um, I don't know that I can, I can isolate that completely. Um, there's sometimes it's some pretty significant passages. When there's a whole verse missing, that's considered huge. And at the end of 1 John, there's a, there's a passage missing, uh, and, and also in John, um, you have a significant passage missing. And if you get more than one verse, you get a multiple verse exclusion. That is mammoth differences. So a lot of these are one word. Um, but if you want to take the time, I, I, I don't know that, I'm sure someone has it online. You could probably look it up, what's the percent difference. Um, but uh, just in exclusions, um, you're, lo- you're talking about, like I said, just in words that were not, that were in the Text Receptus and not in the Vaticanus or Latin Vulgate, you're talking about 162 passages, not words. Some of those just one word exclusion, like Lord, some of them are a whole verse. And so that's what he's cataloged here. Um, just, just in exclusions, not in changes, which are also there. 
And just to give you an idea what a change looks like, um, remember the story of Daniel and uh, his friends and the fiery furnace, right? You're all familiar with that, right? We all know the story. Um, what did Nebuchadnezzar see in the midst of the fire? One whose appearance or countenance, um, here's what it says in the King James Version, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Okay, well that's not a very Aryan, good Aryan thing to say. So here's what this Bible says. Okay, which all your modern translations are built off of this. So here's what the RSV, one example the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the God, like a son of the gods. Okay? Big difference. One is a declaration that he had knowledge of this one in a title, the son of God, and the other one is a, like a son of the gods. So they didn't exclude the words, but they changed them. There was a, a, a change. And so he's got all of those cataloged in here too. If you'd like to go through this and um, look at all of these. Um, he's got several of them cataloged. He's made it his life work. He's a King James only advocate. Um, and I, I'm not to that point, but I am certainly want to have us recognize that we know what we're up against. And I've said that over and over and over again every lesson. Uh, I want you to know what you're reading and recognize what you're dealing with. Uh, yes, some of the language is helpful to us, but beware because some of it can be misleading and know where it's taking you. And again, I think the largest influence in this family group, uh, Wida, is the Arianism. And it doesn't take a lot of percentage to really start to affect it. And I think that was the complaint about the, in the early church about what the Jews were doing to their Old Testament Hebrew was it doesn't take a lot of tweaking here and there to move away from the idea that the Messiah is divine and has to die. Okay, any other questions? Yes? A God. Which is interesting, until they came up with the New World Translation, um, Jehovah's Witnesses were King James only too, so were the Mormons. Um, and because it's not really a language most Americans are comfortable with often, but they came out with the New World Translation. That was one of the primary verses in Colossians as well, um, that uh, Jesus was a God. Okay, and so... Um, that's how air gets brought in. And so that's what the Arians did, and that's why you're missing so many lords in the midst of your modern, many of your modern translations. Most of them will notate it, though, and tell you other translations or other manuscripts have lord here. And most of your King James and New King James versions will have notations saying that this is out of other manuscripts. And the question is, which one do you trust? And uh, again, we know, we know the, 
theological history of this family group, and that's what is concerning, disconcerting. Good. That's a good illustration. New World Translation. I don't even have that in the map here. (laughs) But the New World Translation would have been very comparable to an Arian one. Very comparable doctrinally. Jehovah's Witness and the Arians. Good. Other questions? But I, I would not, if you had to, if I, you were going to twist my arm to make a percentage, I would say it's probably going to be, um, the percentage of difference is probably less than 10%. I would say no more, it couldn't be more than 15%. Um, but I'd probably say it's going to be less than 10%. But it's a significant 10%. Okay. But that's just guesswork. That's just pulling a number off my hat. Okay. Yeah. But this 95 is between all of these. We have 95% just complete agreement that these should be in there. And remember, a lot of these were hand-done by men, and we have very few copies, and, and almost no full copies of them. Okay? Um, I want to talk about textual criticism in its modern way, and that's where we're going to finish up. Um, what do we do with it now? What, what are they doing to it, and why are we... Why do we need to know all of this? Why do we need to have this foundation? Is because we are under constant, your Bible is under constant attack by textual critics, by liberal theologians, by seminary professors, um, and many of our seminaries um, in this country uh, who have long traditions are, are just fully denying the veracity of the scriptures. They're just almost... Um, it's just a nice book to read. Good principles you can pick and choose from out of it. And we've lost the authoritativeness, and I want to address some of that um, in two weeks. We're going to finish up this study. Okay? But if you have any questions, please tell me. So I'll, if I have to address something else that you didn't get, that you feel it, you don't understand, please let me know, and I will simply add on to it. Okay? Let's have our prayer. Yes, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're all over here. Um, a lot of them, I'm not going to say that everybody who uses these modern versions denies the deity of Christ. I would never go that far. Um, but those that do are going to always be in this camp. They're always going to use these modern versions. Um, they are going to almost denigrate the King James and New King James, which is what they do. And I've got a book like that on my library too, where you just, and yes, I can, I've already shown you a couple of Old Testament issues between the Masoretic and the Septuagint. Um, and so they would just discount it and say, well, this is what we should definitely go with. Um, but yeah, uh, 
I don't know of anyone that's, um, and again, I haven't been in the modern seminary world for a while, um, and mostly what I read is from other people's evaluations of seminaries, and, um, but most of the liberal elements are coming in, and they're doing more than just picking a weak translation. They are saying that Um, there, you, the old terminology, the, the terminology about 20 years ago was the Bible contains God's word, not is God's word. So we moved from inerrant God's word that the Bible is the word of God to the Bible contains the word of God. And now um, we have taken it a step further and, and essentially the Bible is a collection of interesting writings. And we've almost excluded inspiration from it entirely. And so that's the movement. And in my time in seminary, the big fight was over those two words. Is it the word of God or does it contain the word of God? And that was the big fight back in the 80s. Well, now that's gone even farther. So to the point that there are some seminaries out there that challenge everything in the Bible the science of the Bible, the historicity of the Bible, and let alone the inerrancy or the inspiration of the Bible. And that's what pastors are being fed in many of our seminaries, many liberal seminaries particularly. And when I say liberal, don't think that every Baptist seminary is conservative because that's just not the case. Um, The Southern Baptists have liberal seminaries and conservative seminaries, both. And I've talked with pastors here in New Mexico that came out of the liberal seminary, and it showed. No, they were the ones saying the Bible contains the word of God. Somewhere in there is the scripture. You, we get to choose where it is, but it's not all scripture, just some of it is. And I've met those guys, and I've engaged them. Um, pastor up in Los Alamos years ago that I had encountered with, um, and so they come out of, they're Southern Baptists, but they're out of liberal seminaries, and then there's some conservative seminaries as well. So um, it, it's, it's, fingers are everywhere. Okay, so don't think, oh, it must be just those crazy Methodists. No, <laughs> it's, it's in every denomination there's a liberal element and a conservative element. That's what the battle's going on. It shows when they war over, should women be pastors? When they war over, should homosexuals be allowed to be ministers? Should they be allowed in your church at all? Um, these wars that are going on, culture wars in our churches today that you hear about, where they're taking votes as synods and, and as conventions, um, these are all foundationally being exposed because of this war was lost 30 years ago in a lot of those denominations. That the authority of the scripture was taken away and now... <clears throat> Everything's up for grabs. And they're grabbing it. Okay. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. And we pray you might give us that boldness and courage to declare it to be your word and authoritative in our life and that we might be humbled to it and be obedient to it. We thank you for it. Even when it is challenged by so many and attacked and we see historically that there was times when it was 
suppressed by the very people that claim to be your representatives on earth. And Lord, our prayer is that uh, we might not be ever counted that number, but we might um, recognize the wonderful gift that you've given to us of your word encapsulated in uh, your scriptures and filling it up. And Lord, we pray that we might approach it always with that understanding and with the honor and, and uh, uh, preciousness that it deserves. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.